I don't think I ever heard another man, truly another man say to me, I need help. Can you help me? And so it really opened my eyes. I, I started helping. I went back the next day. I went back the day after that. I found I was sleeping better. I was more personable. I was more open to suggestion from family and conversations because I had denied parole every time it came up while I was in there. I just kept staying in there. I could have been out like in six months, but I just kept staying there and denying my parole because I thought I was doing everybody a favor when it was probably the most selfish thing I could do. And uh, I, what I realized is I was uh, being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. Welcome to the next episode of What's Next with Eric Wood. Our next guest is former number two overall NFL draft pick, and that's Ryan Leaf. I got to hear Ryan speak at the 2019 ESPN College Football Seminar and rushed to find him after to tell him how powerful his words were that he shared. I couldn't wait to get him on the podcast because he has one of the most powerful stories of redemption you have ever heard. In this episode, he talks candidly about what caused him to be known as the biggest draft bust in sports history and how he no longer lets that title define him. He also talks about a time how teaching prisoners to read while serving time himself taught him the power that serving others has on you as a person and how that has led him on his current journey of using his story to impact others. This discussion had such an impact on me and I cannot wait to share it with you today. Please take time to rate, review, and especially subscribe to this podcast so that every new episode will get pushed to your phone automatically each week and you will help spread the impact that I hope to make through this podcast. Enjoy. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Of course, man. My pleasure. Yeah, I believe we first met at the ESPN College Football Seminar. It was both of our first years in college football working for ESPN you actually spoke at the seminar and did a phenomenal job and at that point I earmarked you as a, a hopeful guest down the road and from following you on social media lately and if you don't follow Ryan on on Twitter that's where I follow him man you want to talk about some uplifting messages but seeing what he was doing on Twitter I said man I got to get him on the podcast I'm fired up to dig in today yeah me too I'm glad I'm you know it's, it's so fun to see peers have success it just is. I just, you know, for the longest time, I think we competed so hard against everybody. But then when football's over, uh, you know, to meet you and, and see you down in, in, in Charlotte there for the ESPN seminar. Um, and we were both kind of, we didn't know what, what to do really, or what, right. what was about to happen for us this next year. And then, then you know, Lee Fitting had at, reached out and asked for me to just to speak. Uh, it was kind of a big hire for them to take a, a chance on me just because of my past and everything. And I just wanted a uh, to kind of make a statement because I was going into a field of, of uh, you know, broadcasters and journalists, some who have covered me in right. the past. And I wanted to kind of have it as an opportunity to make amends if I had treated any of them poorly. Cause I know I did, I, you know, it was, it was an opportunity for me to make amends and say, Hey, you know, um, you know, a lot of, you know, who I am and I, and a lot of you probably, I may have treated, poorly and I wanted them to know that like I don't take this for granted what what's being given to me now what's being this opportunity that I'm being granted I I'm not going to take it for granted I'm going to work my tail off uh and and I'm open-minded to any sort of criticism and critiques to be better at my job that was kind of how um I wanted to um 
address them. And then I wanted them to understand that like what they do, what they get to do every weekend and throughout the year of college football, it's, you know, you're, you're being of service uh, in a way. And in this season, what you got to do and be a part of college football this year, when I think a lot of people needed it, um, including the players, right? The players needed right. it more than anybody because they asked to play. But I think the viewer and the, and the sports fan out there needed that. They needed to escape their lives a little bit because of what's been going on. No doubt. And when you gave your talk, the humility was on full display. In the other, the only other analyst, ESPN analyst besides you that spoke was Pat McAfee. Totally, two totally different messages, two, two uh, effective messages. Pat got the crowd going, and then you brought some humility, some uh, heartfelt message to it, and I loved it. As I was preparing for this podcast, I found an interesting tidbit that when you were being recruited by the University of Miami, they wanted you to play linebacker. You obviously end up playing quarterback at Washington State. I had a, a buddy of mine, Jim Kelly, who has been on the podcast. I knew him from my Buffalo days. He wanted to go to Penn State, but they wanted to play linebacker. So he ended up going to Miami. I just found it weird uh, that, you know, there has been that many quarterbacks on the podcast and there was linebacker affiliations. I guess some of you big dogs, uh, maybe some of you quarterbacks are tougher than I thought, but <laughs> what, what, what led to the final decision to go to Washington State? Well, ultimately, it was Mike Price. He was the head coach. Uh, Dennis Erickson was the head coach at Miami at the time. And he was, um, you know, he was looking, he had just won a national championship. Uh, he was looking at some other deals. And, and he had some Montana ties where I'm from. And he was honest on my recruiting trip. He said two things. He said, like, if there's a pro job that, that's, that comes available, I'm going to take a really hard, hard look at it. And sure enough, he did. You know, Seattle Seahawks became available and he became a head coach for the Seattle Seahawks. But he also mentioned something that the recruiting coordinator uh, saw me more as a tight end linebacker type. And um, I don't think linebacker was really necessarily what they were thinking. I think they were thinking tight end for me. Gotcha. And, uh, and I would have been, a, you know, I think I would have been a great tight end. I had, I had good hands. I, I was quick, um, but I'd always played quarterback. And I was really grateful for him, um, to be honest with me. I just kind of felt that a fish out of water. Uh, down in South Beach, you know, I was in cutoff jeans and like a flannel and I just, I, I didn't fit the part, but I went on the trip because, hey man, when would I ever experience that as a kid from Montana? And I'm glad I did, but ultimately it came down to Coach Price and him, he sold me. He sold me on the idea that if I came there and I played for him, that, that we would play in the Rose Bowl together. And, uh, and I bought it. I bought right. it book, line and sinker. I hadn't, I hadn't researched it at all because if I had, I would have probably known that they hadn't gone in 60s, well, since 1931. So wow. it was a leap of faith. It really was. It was the best, best choice I've ever made in my life uh, was to go to Washington State, become a Cougar and play for Mike Price. That's incredible. And then it ends up coming to fruition and you have yeah. a, a decorated college career. I mean, um, you're not that much older than me, but I grew up just behind you um, kind of, in the football, I believe you were kind of in college as I was heading into high school. And I just remember you um, just crushing it in college and this unbelievable career. Do you think in most drafts, if Peyton Manning wasn't in your draft class, do you think in most drafts you would have been the number one overall pick? Well, there was a, there was a, you know, we, we sabotaged as much as we could not to be the number one pick. There was a really real good chance that we were going to be the number one pick that year. Cause I know it, it went back Indian and forth. Yeah, it was Indianapolis or, or San Diego. And, you know, I didn't have the right perspective. I thought, like, Beaches, 
you know, money, babes, that's what's important here. I wasn't thinking about Marshall Falk's in the backfield and Marvin Harrison's out on the perimeter. Those are the things I should have been thinking about. I had family on the West Coast. I played in the Pac-10. It just felt like a natural fit. And I saw myself as, we saw the picks as 1A and 1B. I didn't see it as one or two or the first overall pick in the draft. I wasn't, I wasn't caught up on that. Um, so, you know, we missed a meeting, uh, it wasn't intentional, but I had to go get an MRI at the combine. So I missed a meeting with the head coach for Indianapolis, Jim Moore at the time. He made a big stink about it. It became a bigger story than it was. Um, I know Jim Ursay, the head, the owner of, of the Colts wanted to draft me and, and Bill Polian always said that, you know, the scout group scouting room was pretty split down the middle in terms of where they wanted to go. They're, they're very pleased with the decision they made and they made the right choice clearly because, Arguably, Peyton may be the, the greatest to ever play the position. Right. It's amazing how stories can get skewed, too, because that was put out there that you skipped that meeting. And when you said there was some sabotage going on, I was going to ask, was that the sabotage? Because it was pretty well known at the time that you missed that meeting. That led to a big stink. Okay, we're definitely drafting Peyton now. Ryan's not mature enough to play. And it's amazing yeah, it was, the story was, you're getting an MRI. Yeah, I was the the um, Bears had me get an MRI on my thumb that I'd broken in high school, and uh, so the story got spun out. Now, did we go to them, you know, nights before the draft and say, "Hey, Ryan, Ryan doesn't want to play in Indy," so you know, he, he doesn't want to play in Indianapolis. He'd rather play in in San Diego. So we made that very clear. Um, I don't know how long before the draft they chose, but they they kept my agent in, in, in the dark because we still thought there may be a possibility on draft day that they could do something. You know, if an owner wants to do what an owner wants to do, they'll do it. They're billionaires. Right. Right. So, um, but once they announced Peyton's name, we were, we were pretty relieved and we were excited and we were happy. My whole family had foam charger um, lightning bolts in the crowd. And I mean, we were, we were all in on, on being a San Diego charger and, uh, playing for Kevin Gilbrook. So the first two games of your career, you win them both. And you can correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. You win the first two games of your career, and then it kind of spirals from there. And, you know, up and down success. But you're in the league for four years, and you're out. Would, would you say it was a lack of maturity that ultimately cost you your career so early? What cost me my career was my inability to deal with failure uh, and, be, be, and, be, and be criticized. Mm. Um, I had, like you said, I'd won my first two starts and no one had done that since John Elway in 1983, I think it was. So wow. it'd been a long time. And, um, and I walked into Kansas city and Arrowhead stadium and I would play the, the worst game of my career, my whole life, not just professional football, but my whole, my whole life. It was the worst performance. And it, the performance wasn't the problem. Like, like I knew I was talented. Everybody knew I was talented. I wouldn't have been a second pick in the NFL draft and compared to Peyton Manning if I wasn't extremely talented. It's how I dealt with it. And that's the biggest issue around everything, not just football, life, anything. You know, life isn't fair or it, it's how you deal with it that matters. That's the bottom line. And I always go back to Tim Tebow's speech. If you recall after that loss to, I believe it was Mississippi State at home, and he went into that post-game press conference and he took all the accountability. They lost on an extra point miss. So it wasn't his fault, right? It, 
It certainly wasn't, but he took all the blame, the accountability, said he's going to work his tail off. No one's going to see somebody work harder. This is not going to happen again. That's how you deal with an awkward, tough, adverse situation. Instead, I reacted as a petulant child, like it wasn't my fault. I was so embarrassed. I was so humiliated in how I played because I thought it was the end-all be-all as a success and a failure. And so it was how I dealt with it. And I just kept backing myself into a corner and corner and then flailing away, fighting the media all week. And ultimately my teammates, my coaches, the, the organization, everything, you know, it was, if it was a, a better example of a player self-sabotaging everything that could possibly go right for him, I would be it. And so when I see it happen now, when I see the whole Dwayne Haskins scenario play out this mm. year, it reminds me, it's like looking in a mirror. And I know people have a hard time seeing that because of what happened post-career for me in terms of legal troubles and, and, and addiction and stuff. But during the, the moment of like what can define your life and define your career and giving you an identity as it's who you are, that's where, I, that's where the missteps happen. I mean, I was, I was every bit as talented as anybody on the football field. Everybody is. It's, but it's what you have between the ears and how you deal with Sunday to Sunday that makes you a successful pro player. So what advice do you have for guys entering the NFL to prepare for that now? Because I think so many guys, especially in this social media age, you know, they're, they're going to get peppered after games if they have a bad game, especially these high-profile guys. You know, I entered the league in 2009, and for me, that was like right when Twitter was kind of starting. It wasn't that big of a deal as it is now. I mean – if, if you allow yourself, you can get entrenched in. And what advice do you have for young guys entering the league? Well, if you're going to believe the good stuff, you got to believe the bad. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's, a, that's a statement my father gave me a long time ago, and it's completely true. None of it's, none of it's you know, real. So there's an affirmation that you know, when I talk to guys coming into the league, I tell them, hey, just start saying this every morning in the mirror. It may, it may not fit. It may not take for a couple weeks, a couple months, uh, whatnot. But if you say this every morning in the mirror for the next year, I guarantee you a year from now, your muscle memory and your brain will be, will believe it. And I, and I tell them to use the affirmation, what other people think of me is none of my business. Mm. And it was really hard for me, really hard for me later in life to start using that affirmation and not grip my teeth when I said it, because I cared so much about what others thought about me. I cared about their judgment. Uh, it, it took me down a, a terrible rabbit hole early in my life, especially in my early career in San Diego, with the media scrutiny, the fan scrutiny, all of it. I took it so personally. Um, because when I was first drafted there, I was supposed to be the savior and everybody right. loved up on me. And I thought there was like this loyalty thing between, between me and the, the organization, me and the fan base. And at a professional level, that that's absolutely doesn't exist. If, if, right. if you produce for the football team, yes, it exists. If you don't produce for the football team and you act in any bit way or, 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 or about entitlement, uh, that, that ends quickly. And uh, I found that out in a very harsh form uh, in my time in San Diego. It's amazing what you've accomplished during your career. And we talked briefly before we started recording about how you can go on any list and you're, you're towards the top or the top of all the bus charts, but you know what it takes to be a bust? You have to have accomplished something before. And, and I found this interesting. 
the first player ever drafted and the only player drafted in the first round ever from the state of Montana. So how do you craft that now where, cause, cause you're so comfortable talking about your struggles and, and you talked about that affirmation. How hard is it to go back and talk about your career at this point? It's not hard. It's, it's, it's easy. Cause it's, it's, real it's the truth it's it is what it is there was a ton of expectation on me i was drafted alongside arguably the greatest to ever play the game at the quarterback position so there was a ton of expectation no more than on me by my myself i had a ton of expectation for me too i was i wanted to win super bowls and i wanted to you know um play for 20 years that's that was i wanted to be the greatest ever played everybody who gets to that level thinks and believes that now it's what it's how you execute it you know, again, that matters. And, and so I understand it. I think for the longest time, and, and, and it's rare to hear a peer who, uh, who played in the NFL use that word. I, I've never heard another former player uh, in the NFL ever use that word with me. Right. The bust word. And we don't call each other that. No. We, we understand how difficult it is and how the fact that there's only 27,000 of us ever in the 100 years of football to have signed NFL contracts. So we know how difficult it is. So we don't use that word with one another because it, we simply just don't believe it. it's true. And um, the odds of me making it, like you said, I'm the only Montana never drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Like the odds of me making it to the NFL, I should have never been there. First off, you know, every waking second I got in the NFL was a gift because there's no way that was supposed to happen to little old me from Great Falls, Montana, born of John and Marsha Leaf, that's, that was never supposed to happen. So you have to have some acceptance and understand that, hey, this is what people are going to, going to believe. Uh, and what they like to do with it, they see it as ammunition. And mm. for the longest time, I allowed it to be uh, weaponized. And then I allowed it to affect me in a negative, toxic way where I felt like a failure and I felt less than, and I believe all these people that, that I would never take advice from, but I was being belittled by, and, and, and it was having an effect. So I just didn't, you know, figure this out. I, I just didn't figure this out. It, it, it took a long time and a lot of, you know, heartbreak and understanding and acceptance and surrender that, hey, this is reality. People think you're a bust. Uh, it's absolutely not the truth, um, but it's what's going to be there. And, um, you know, and I'm okay with it. Um, I think it's the best way to put it. I'm just, I've, I've surrendered that fight and I've accepted what the truth is and it's okay. I know who I see in the mirror every day. And I really believe if I had been a successful football player and won a couple Super Bowls and then rode off into the sunset, I wouldn't have the impact that I'm having on people because I was this fallen um flawed human being i wouldn't have and so when they say bust i almost wear it as a badge of honor and i'm like right yeah thank thank you thank you for whoever sent that failure in the eyes of these people to me to give me that and once you kind of accept that that's what it's really about that's what that's how your perspective shifts but it's hard right i mean it took me to a place where where I thought I was just meaningless and worthless and uh, there was no hope and I'm on the, the floor of a prison cell at one point. So, uh, I mean, 
it, it has its effect. And I understand those who uh, are in similar situations that I was and, and are, and have dealt with it in a, you know, in a difficult and negative way, because it's seemingly the only way you can do it until you find, uh, find that acceptance and understanding. Man, that is absolute gold. And you threw out the stat about the one in 27,000 people to sign an NFL contract. You were doing some type of speaking um, on the radio. I was driving down the road in my car one day and my career came to an end abruptly after year nine. I had a surprise neck injury after our playoff game. I was the only player on the team to play 100% of the snaps that year. My career is over. And I struggled with that, and I wanted to keep playing. I had so much more I wanted to accomplish. And I was driving down the road. I heard you speaking. And this is the power of words, and this is the impact that you're continuing to have at this point of your life where you talk you might not have these. You threw out another another stat, and I wrote it down on my phone immediately. And I've it's, it's in a, a list of maybe 20 things that I have teed up for speaking engagements if I need them. And you said one in – there's only been a thousand players ever to play eight plus years in the NFL. And you threw it out yep. there. I wrote it down immediately because I was so hung up that I didn't get to 10. And I was, you know, you, you, when you get out of the NFL, you kind of just ride this roller coaster like, Ooh, okay. Now what's God going to do for me? He's going to do something big. Okay. It didn't happen yet. I was kind of on that roller coaster ride. And I heard that. I thought, man, one of a thousand ever. That's insane. I, and I, and you get so caught up in your world. And in my world, it was, man, I didn't get to 10. I didn't get to another problem. I, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And, and that's the power of words where you could, you were doing like an ESPN radio hit when you threw that out there. And I just had it on serious. And, and that's yeah. the power of words. And, and, and I encourage you to continue to use your platform because you're absolutely crushing it in the space you're in. And, and you talked about um, being on the floor of a prison cell and, and, and Ryan's written in a phenomenal Players Tribune article that was a, a note to his former self. He can go back, you can go back and read that, and I encourage you to. But through your battle of uh, fighting these painkillers and where that led you and, and ultimately hitting rock bottom, which you mentioned, what got you off the mat and what has led you to this now sober life you have now? Well, you'd think it would be waking up on a prison cell floor. Um, or then being given an opportunity to go to, to rehab in, in, a, in a prison setting and getting kicked out of there. Um, there's so many things that you would expect. Would I just had to be humbled in a way that, uh, that most others don't, right? They, they understand what their, where their bottom is and how they can bounce back up. And I just, I just didn't. I, I thought I was the victim for the longest time, and I never took any accountability for my part in all of this, which no matter what, I can't control what anybody else did or said or, or, or anything in this process. It's about, it's about what I did. And, uh, and that finally happened while in prison, I had a roommate and, and he was uh, an Afghan Iraqi war veteran. And he had done something I think probably a lot of us in our lifetime had done in our, our life at some point. And that's drive drunk one night. Um, just so happened he would he would kill somebody mm. uh, driving drunk that night and he'd been in prison there for i think about eight years when we became roommates and uh he was 31 he went in when he was like 23 he was on i think leave leave from a tour in afghanistan when this happened and i watched him every day uh try to better himself um he made amends for what he'd done he hadn't accepted 
that this was the person, the version of him that was going to move forward. And, and I watched him try to better himself every single day with education, with uh, service while in there. And I just, I didn't care. I just thought he, what he was doing was stupid. Um, until one day he felt comfortable enough, I guess, to confront me. And he said, you know, Ryan, you don't understand the impact that you, you could have in here. And, and for when you get out, you have your head buried in the sand. And he said, so we're going to go down to the prison library and help prisoners who don't know how to read, learn how to read. Wow. And, you know, I had, a, I had, come on, you know, when we're, we're coached by great mentors and people our whole lives, and we've had these kind of come to Jesus moments all the time in our careers, it's just a matter of whether you are open-minded enough or listen. And, and I just, I don't think I ever was open-minded. Um, the chemical had been out of my brain for, you know, a significant amount of time, almost 20, 26 months, I think it was. And, you know, I acquiesced, I went, I, I went begrudgingly. I remember still walking down the hallway in my red jumpsuit thinking, uh, this is stupid. This isn't going to help me. Um, you know, doesn't even know how important I am. Um, the guy, the guy in a prison jumpsuit still no, thought that about himself. That's no, how no. diluted my brain was still, but I went and then there were these men in there, you know, upwards to 50 years old who in a place where you're not supposed to show vulnerability were, they were vulnerable. They were like, Brian, I, I, I can't read. Um, can you help me? And I think growing up in Montana around the cowboy culture, mm. then being in locker rooms my whole life, I don't think I ever heard another man, Truly, another man say to me, I need help. Can you help me? Wow. And so it really opened my eyes. I, I started helping. I went back the next day. I went back the day after that. I found I was sleeping better. I was more personable. I was more open to suggestion from family and conversations because I had denied parole every time it came up while I was in there. I just kept staying in there. I could have been out like in six months, but I just kept staying there and denying my parole because I thought I was doing everybody a favor when it was probably the most selfish thing I could do. And uh, I, what I realized is I was um, being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. You know, I used to think that playing on Saturdays and Sundays was like, that's, that's how I was being of service to people. Right. What a, what a dilute, you know, what a twisted version of, of what you do is service. Um, and I knew, and I, I went back and, you know, a few months later, I became the TA, uh, I became the TA to the substance abuse counselor there, uh, helped guys. And I knew it was going to have to be at the foundation of who I was when I got out or nothing would change. I would, I would be back in there or I would be dead. Um, if I didn't change like 180 degrees, my lifestyle. And so I've been trying to live like that ever since I walked out of there with no understanding or no expectation that like life would get better. Like there's, Right. There's no expectation for that. I had no money. I had no friends. I had no jobs. I had nothing. I had this hope when I walked out of prison that day, you know, not knowing what the future would be. But I, I can't tell you if you go and be of service to somebody else and make it about somebody else, like your life gets better too. I can't explain how. Right. But like in karmically, it just, it does. Your life gets better too. And it's, so being of service to somebody else could kind of be a selfish act in a way, one of the best selfish acts you can think of. You're exactly right. And it's amazing. I, when I sought advice, when my career got taken from me, 
people, the most advice I got was to serve others. I started this podcast as a way to kind of go on a journey to learn from others, to figure out what's next for me. It's what's next with Eric Wood. And early on, Chris Burke, a former pro baseball player said, just get out of your own head, try and serve other people and watch how rewarding that is. And I'm so far from perfect. It's it's not even funny, but (laughs) yeah. When you try and serve others, when you wake up in the morning and think, how can I serve my family first? Then how can I serve other people? It's amazing what that does for you personally. And it's amazing that that is what got you off the floor. It wasn't a motivational speech. It wasn't some, uh, you know, some hearing something in your head, whatever it is. It, it just simply was serving others. I love and that. it. And, it, and you don't realize it when it's happening, right? I mean, I can, I can go back and pinpoint it now because I can see where that was a shift. But you don't know when it's happening. It's not like this thing goes off in your head and like, oh, I got this. I got this now. Right. Um, you, you don't realize it's happening. It's all of a sudden, you know, you keep acting as such and it pays dividends in your life and you become a different person. And I think that's, so I think people are always looking for the quick fix and like, I give them, I give them what worked for me. And then it's a matter like if I would have, if I went down and, and worked with those guys for two or three days and then stopped, like I don't change. Right. Like this is, has to, this has to be a lifestyle change or, or nothing sets just like practice. You practice something over and over and over and over and over again to perform when the, the toughest things happen in a game, just like life. You, you, you practice what you preach. And then when difficult, adverse times can happen in your life, you have this equity that you've built up uh, with being a different person that allows you to handle things in a positive and healthy way. This episode is also brought to you by Punched Energy Chews, and these have become a favorite product of mine for energy and fitness. They use a patented formula with tons of scientific studies, and they start with pure green Arabica coffee bean caffeine. It improves your physical and mental performance, increases your metabolism, helps burn calories and body fat, and they also help boost your immunity, which is very important at this time because they're a great source of vitamin C. They're also ultra low glycemic, no spikes, no bounces, and no crashes. What you're going to do is go to punchedenergy.com, use code ericwood20 for 20% off. Give them a try. Link in the show notes. That is so good. Um, Talk about impacting yourself in a healthy way you're down 80 pounds now i'm down maybe 65 from my playing days Uh, i want to hear about your weight loss journey you've been on well you know uh you know first couple months into the pandemic you know it was about it was about you know self-defense right you 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 didn't really know what was going on you didn't know how long this was going to go on it was this is so unprecedented and unnatural for us not to be with one another Remember when we thought the pandemic, like if it lasts two weeks, that's crazy. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had gone a couple months uh, and, you know, I was, the kid was home every single day, you know, got, we got a little three-year-old and dealing with that in a healthy way. And we were just, you know, we were comforting one another by, by how we ate. I really feel that way. We'd, we'd eat whatever we wanted. We'd cook. Um, and it wasn't, the, it wasn't healthy, right? It was just, it was comfort food is exactly what it was. We ate what made us feel good uh, when we were dealing with an unprecedented time. And then I, right around the 4th of July, I, I saw a picture and I just, you know, I, I didn't like how I looked. I looked, 
I looked angry and I looked bloated and I looked unhealthy is the way I saw it. And so I figured I'm home every single day. Now, last year I was traveling all over the, the country covering sports and I'm actually home every single day with the family. Now let's, let's institute uh, this work I had done with a nutritionist in the past and he delivers, you know, you know, meal prep or he delivers the meals every single morning on your doorstep. And that's the kind of thing I need. I couldn't, I love the food that he brings, but I couldn't sit and cook it and make it myself. I don't have the patience for that. So to have it be pre-made and dropped off and it was wonderful. So I did, I did really three things. I, um, I needed to move more. So we, we instituted family hikes, nice. um, every day upwards to two miles. Um, my diet was 2,100 calories a day and wow. we macroed it out to 60% fat, 30% protein, 10% carb. So in essential, essentially a, a kind of a keto, a keto type diet. And then, um, I drink 200, 200 plus ounces of water every day. Wow. And th those shifts, uh, along with being able to play golf, luckily for the city of LA, uh, they started allowing golf once again, because you can be social with people, but be distanted where you are not just at home, you're out in nature and can be part of it. So all those components, those three components, I really think shifted and it happened quickly. Like I dropped 30 pounds, like within 21 days, my, my body was clamoring for it to have less weight on it joints. I was just so inflamed with the wrong foods. And it's just continued. And I, this last week I hit 218 pounds. Good for I started you. at two, I started at 298. Um, I'm down 80 pounds. Um, it's the lowest I've been since I was a sophomore in college. It's really strange to look at myself on this monitor and see the person looking back at me because it just, it just looks different. Um, but I'm happy I did. And it's as a former athlete, I'm, you know, we're compulsive in nature and obsessive in how we go about stuff. So it really kind of gave me something to, you know, it's like how we get with training or anything we do. This was kind of that. And so golf became uh, a huge part of it. I try to get up and golf in the mornings early, found a good group of guys that, that uh, I know, you know, are safe out in the world. Um, but we stay distance from each other. Um, and then I'm home, you know, and I'm trying to, be, you know, I'm a stay at home preschool dad with the, with the three-year-old when I, when I, who knew that was going to be on the resume when 2020 started, I didn't. Um, right. But I'm glad it did. I'm glad it did. Um, I've got to spend some amazing quality time with this, this, this boy of mine where I was distanced and, and absent from his life from a, a huge part of the fall last year because of, of my new job and the goal I was, I'd been chasing for a while. What's your index? Um, we are at, I got it as low this year during this pandemic. I got it as low as a 1.9 wow. and it is, it's at a 3.8 right now. Good for you. That's, six, that's, that's 68 and 70 and 72 got thrown out a, a little while back. That, that bumped it up pretty quick. So yeah, right when the pandemic started, we were allowed to play golf in Kentucky and I got down to a a five. I think I'm at a mid six right now, 6.8, which is where I want it for uh, these winter months. I don't, I don't want to be traveling down to Florida with a five index and have to cover that one. Uh, cover that one when you're playing, playing guys that are 14s and taking nine strokes off you. Exactly. But we'll have to get yeah. out and swing the six soon. Let's switch gears a little bit. So Alabama dominated the national championship this year. And it seems like it's the same cast and crew and the same playoff formula they have right now 
Do you think college football should keep just four teams in? No, and not because we want to see a different team win the national championship. Most likely for the next decade, if, if Nick Saban and Davo Sweeney stay in the mix and Ryan Day, we're going to see Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, maybe throw in you know, a random LSU or an Oklahoma uh, here and there, yep. um, win the national championship. So that's not going to change. That's never going to change. But what needs to change is bringing others to the table so everybody in the country can be a part of it. You're losing the pageantry. You're losing the fan base by doing the whole who's in with only four of them. And this year was a perfect opportunity for the committee because they didn't, they, they had an excuse, right? They, they were trying to arbitrarily compare teams with unequal records. So why not make it eight this year just for it? And we would have seen some great quarterfinals. And everybody's like, oh, well, Alabama would have blown out Coastal Carolina or whoever they played. I'm like, yeah, but Alabama blew out Notre Dame. They're going to blow out everybody. They blew out Ohio State in the championship. So you're looking at it with a narrowed focus. Look at it as college football, you know, as a, as a huge organism. And we want to include everybody we can. And by making it four and making the idea that uh, the all-in part on uh, or the who's in part on Tuesday nights that ESPN has, and I, don't get me wrong, they own the product, so they have to pump and market their product uh, on Tuesday nights. But if you, if you allow more teams to be available, because if a team's sitting at 13 uh, and there's no like mathematical way they could, they could jump and get into that, their great year may be down the, down the tubes. Like Cincinnati was never a part of the conversation. Right. And so for me, yes. I think it needs to expand, not because we need a new national champion because we're tired of Alabama and Clemson being a part of it. It needs to be more so we can include more people. Ultimately, we'll have the same national champion, and that's fine. The best team always ends up winning and, and being crowned the champion, and that's what it's all about ultimately. Man, I, I love that take, and I'm with you. And at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how a vision of the Rose Bowl got you to Washington State. Well, now, if the Rose Bowl isn't one of the playoff games or the national championship, no one even cares anymore. And it's like it took away so much of the pageantry, which you said, of college football, which made it so great. I played in the Orange Bowl in college. You know, the Louisville Cardinals playing the Orange Bowl, we win it. It was, it was the biggest deal to us. Well, there was no playoff. If there was a playoff, when we lost to Rutgers and Piscataway, our season would have been over. All we would have cared about was being in that top four, but we still won an Orange Bowl that year, and it's still one of two BCS games that Louisville's ever won, and it was a huge deal, and you take that away now with just the, with the playoffs, and that's fine. I love the playoffs, but I think expanding it to eight, and then you, you crush the, the conversation of a few years ago when Central Florida said that they were the national champion too. You crush that conversation, or – Central Florida goes and pulls an upset, and everyone has a whole lot of fun watching it. And, and, and I'm with you there. All right, we got a few recurring questions, and then we'll get you out of here. What's your favorite book? Uh, the, Fault in, the Fault in Our Stars is one of the best. It's about just, just rip your heart out humanity. That's, that's a big one for me. Um, but the other one, Unbroken, mm. uh, about um, the, young, the, man, the young man that – Louis you know, Zamperini, Louis Zamperini, who would go on and compete in the uh, in, in the Berlin Olympics and then be shot down in World War II and be a POW and survive. And that wasn't the hard part. Like right. when he got back home and had to deal with all the demons and became an alcoholic and finding God. I mean, his story, 
like I read it in prison and, in, and at any point in my life, when I'm sitting in there and I felt like I was a victim at all, or like I had it bad, I could, I could think about what he had gone through. And I'm like, dude, get yourself up. You, this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. Um, so his story, uh, the way she wrote it and the fault in our stars are, are a couple books that I will, I will continuously read over and over and over and over again, just because of, um, how it makes me feel. Uh, if, if I go with like the juicy, um, um, you know, guilty pleasure version, uh, gone girl. It was, I mean, I, I, I read that book while I was in prison and I remember walking, going like my roommate was bugging me and I was trying to focus on the book and I knew this, it was just getting so good and so good. And I went out, like sat down in the, the common area and like stayed up till like two in the morning, like reading it. So that was, that was the guilty pre- pleasure version of it. But but Unbroken and The Fault in Our Stars are probably the, the two that I would read over and over and over again because it teaches me so much. That's awesome. I, I loved Unbroken as well. Ryan, what role does your faith play in your life? Well, a lot because there's no, why would I be here? Um, yeah, I, you know, unless there's some higher power, some, some higher purpose. I, I don't abide in, in any certain religion. I, I, I'm what I call spiritual. I take all the good parts from all the religions and, and throw out the bad ones. And uh, there was this joke that, uh, that that was in Sports Illustrated when I turned pro after we had just won the uh, Apple Cup to go to the Rose Bowl. And they were trying to be funny, of course, but it was, uh, what's the difference between God and Ryan Lee? And the punchline is that God doesn't think he's Ryan Lee. And, uh, <laughs> and I, think I, I think I really believed that for a while. Like you walk into a stadium hundred thousand people and you go like this with your hands and you get a reaction. There's a godlike feeling to that. And so for the longest time, I didn't have any faith. Um, but the fact that I'm standing in front of you, um, is proof that there is something greater than me out there. I don't know what God is. I just know I'm not him and that's good enough for me. And that's where my spirit spirituality lies. I meditate, I pray um, for the longest time, you know, nature was my, my higher power. I, I put a lot of faith and understanding in that. I just understand that, that there's something greater than me out there guiding me um, where I need to go. That's great. What was your first car? It was a little white Toyota. Wasn't even four wheel drive. I lived in Montana and so my dad, I love him to death. He, he, I don't know. I don't know if they could have afforded it or not, but it was just, just this little beater. Uh, two-door white Toyota uh, truck that I treated like a four-wheel drive truck. I got that thing stuck in the mountains hunting and fishing and uh, like crazy. But I remember that, that, that thing. I, I was a big basketball guy and I got a vanity license plate that said all net on it. Um, oh. <laughs> such, such a douchey thing to do, but come on. I asked that question because that's the first time I got you to light up this entire podcast. So that's why that question's in there. <laughs> Who's the most famous person in your phone? Uh, probably Peyton Manning, or at least for football fans. Um, What's your relationship like with him? Good. I, I think it's probably closer than he thinks it is. Uh, I'll get a I'll get a response text every three or four texts that I'll send out. You know, but uh, uh, he's been instrumental in my life. Don't you know? He's always been there when things got tough. So. Uh, 
probably um, Justin Hartley, um, yeah. Kevin Connolly. You know, all oh, you yeah. all you entourage fans out there who loved E, him and I are him and I are pretty close. So I mean, there's some there's some some neat. When you live in LA, there's you know you run into a ton of people in LA. But I probably with with the the success of This Is Us right now, I'd probably say it's Justin Hartley. I knew you'd have some good ones being in the LA area and as big of a name you have. Uh, what's your favorite restaurant? Oh, probably lo- local back home. Uh, <laughs> Taco Treat. Uh, it's a local local fast. I wouldn't say it's fast food because you can sit down and and uh, it's it's authentic Mexican food, but it's it's it, <laughs> it's a it's a home. It's a home base thing for me when I go home. Uh, and that's in Montana. That's in Montana. Uh, local around different cities in Montana, but people would people would know who are from Montana who are listening to this. Um, I'll have to. Uh, do you know Colt Anderson? Oh yeah, I know Colt. I know Mark. Him and him and Marcus Mariana. Um, Mariani. Uh, that was going to be the next of, one. I was going to ask both of them about that restaurant. Love those guys. Oh, they're yeah, they're yeah. They'll 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 know who that is. Yeah, for sure. Okay, last one. What's next for Ryan Leaf? Um, just do the same thing tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. I, I try not to look too far ahead because um, we don't. I mean, we have no idea what COVID is going to look like this year. There's, yes, there's a vaccine out there, but you know, we heard Kirk Herbstreet and, and Chris Fowler on TV last night talking about how great it's going to be to have uh, full stadiums again next year and. And that's, that's a big conclusion to jump to. We have no idea what this is going to look like. In fact, a lot of places in particular where I live in LA, it is as worse as it's been. So you're too um, in Louisville, Kentucky. So, you know, it's, it's a matter about doing the, the next right thing. So that's, that's what the future holds for me is, is to do the next right thing and whatever the future holds. Um, I'm starting a podcast. Um, it's going to be announced and launched here in a couple of weeks with said friend, Kevin Connolly's company, uh, action park media uh, and we're just calling it bust mm. and it's my story and uh um and you know we're gonna attack um parts of my life in every episode and how i dealt with it poorly how i should have dealt with it how i can deal with it now and how you know it's a self-help podcast essentially um and uh we're using the infamous word as the as the name of it because I simply think that uh, um, that will resonate with people and uh, it's important to tell that uh, and make it available to people, especially during a COVID time where I'm not being able to travel the country and speak to the masses like I was pre COVID. And uh, this is a way to, to reach people and, and try to be of service once again. And I, I can't wait to listen to that. Follow Ryan on Twitter and, and just be encouraged by the way he lives his life each and every day. Brother, I just encourage you to keep serving others, doing what you're doing right now, and keep making the impact you are. I mean, it is absolutely phenomenal to watch you from afar get up off the mat and what you're doing now to live with positivity, to, to the way you, you parent and everything about you right now. Keep spreading that message and you're going to impact so many more people having this test that became your testimony in your life in this approach that hey everything happens for me not to me like this this attitude you have right now is going to be so infectious and you're gonna you're gonna impact so many more people than if you won five super bowls i appreciate that yeah i mean can't control anything other than what what we do um 
You know, when we wake up in the morning, we can choose to be happy. You know, we can. That's that's a shift for me. Like you can choose and at any point during the day, if something bad happens or if something makes you angry, you know, you can live in those feelings and then start your day over again. That's, it's just, it's up to you. It really is. And then this year, um, more than any other year, because of what we went through in 2020, like what 2021 is going to be is, it's going to be what you make of it this year as a, as an individual is it's going to be of what you, what you make of it. And so it's important that you know and understand that you can take some control back in a world right now where you don't have a lot of control um, by, you know, doing that next right thing. And, and that's up to you. And I'm excited for it. Me too. I appreciate all your words on this podcast. I, I appreciate the impact it had on me. Thanks for coming on, brother. My pleasure. You keep doing what you're doing, Eric. Proud of you too. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or with your followers on social media. Also, shoot us a rating and support the sponsors whose information is in the show notes. Until next time, as I tell my daughter before she leaves for school every day, spread some joy and make it the best day ever.